One of life's greatest questions is, what happens to us after we die? Is death the end or a new beginning? Welcome to the Round Trip Death Podcast. In this show, we listen to first-hand accounts of people who have gone beyond the veil and return to talk about it. So this morning, we're going to take everybody, all of our listeners here on a little journey across the ocean. Imagine the most beautiful beaches in the world on the island of Oahu and aloha, David Wallace. Good morning. Aloha. <laughs> now I hear you have a nickname. Tell us about that. My nickname? Yes. Kahu Dave. Oh, <laughs> it's a title. Um, a kahu is a um, is a title that uh, people assume the the term kahu means a caretaker, okay, or someone who's responsible for something. And so, if a person is responsible for uh, taking care of a building, something like a janitor, yeah. Um, he's actually a kahu hale, or a person responsible for a uh, the house. Um, a person that takes care of a yard, uh, his name would be a kahu aina, a person that takes care of the land. So it's a title. And uh, here in Hawaii, there's uh, kahus uh, when people refer to kahu it's a person with a spiritual uh, spiritual connection and a responsibility to carry out so would you like me to call you kahu or dave or both just dave okay <laughs> we'll be less formal today yeah uh, i i yeah i i'm not into titles but um you know i went through the process and for uh hawaiians they like to honor people I uh, am Polynesians. They like to honor people and, um, you know, give them the, their due respect. So it, it's uh, very respectful uh, when people call me Kahu, and I appreciate that. There's another term that we uh, I keep on being called, and that's uncle. <laughs> In Hawaii, uncle, tutu, names like that are very highly respected as well. Yeah. And uh, it's the younger generation recognizing the older generation and uh, hopefully the wisdom that we carry. Well, we're going to hear about some of your wisdom today. <laughs> but I want to let listeners know, first of all, that I think you have the record for the most NDEs of any one person that's been on this show so far. Wow. So, at, and we'll we'll let people just count as we go along. But let's go back to your very first one that you had as a child. Can you give us a little idea of where you were living, what you were doing, kind of leading up to what happened? Sure. Um, I was a five-year-old child growing up on the island of Molokai. And um, Molokai, uh, during that time, uh, we were part of the Hawaiian Homestead uh, you know, project in central Molokai. And so we lived on a, a homestead. We had a five-acre plot of land with another 35 acres detached um, to practice agriculture, if you wanted. Um, our family ended up uh, leasing the 35 acres to the pineapple plantation. <laughs> so pineapple was growing on the land. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's the way we lived. And uh, there are there, me and my parents and uh, five children. So it was me and my brother and uh, our three sisters. How did you have an NDE as a five-year-old? My brother and I were my brother and I were playing in a back car, and uh, we were roughhousing. And uh, actually, I think we were fighting over a piece of candy. <laughs> okay, let me make sure we can paint the picture. Is the car moving or in the driveway? The car is moving, and my aunt is driving. And she took us to uh, she took us uh, to go shopping, and we were returning from shopping, and we we're on the road moving, and uh, we we're fighting, we were playing around and roughhousing, and my I jumped on my brother, 
And my brother kicked me from one side of the car to the next. And I flew in the air <laughs> and I hit the back door and my aunt was scolding us. And, um, you know, I tried to get us to stop. And she said, well, one of us can get hurt. Well, uh, I think a second or third time he kicked me from one side of the car to the next. So I reached out and grabbed to something uh, for something to brace me. And by mistake, I grabbed the car handle, uh, the handle to the door. And the old cars, you pull down to open the door from the inside, not up. <laughs> so I reached and pulled down and the door opened right when my aunt was making a, a turn. And she was making a quick turn. And I was uh, sucked out of the car from the momentum of that. And I ended up uh, falling on the pavement and cracking my head. What do you remember next? Well, I remember, I don't remember hitting the ground. In fact, before I hit the ground, I felt like I was pulling up, you know, like you're falling back and you're trying to pull back, pull yourself up. And that's how I felt. It felt like I was pulling up. And before I hit the ground, I was out of my body. I started looking around and the colors, the, the thing that uh, caught me uh, as a young kid is once I got out of my body, the colors of everything changed. Uh, everything was bright and vibrant. I mean, green, 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 <laughs> blue skies. I mean, white clouds. It was just, um, everything was so clear and crystal clear. And uh, that's the first time I, I witnessed that. And so as I kind of like pulled myself out, I started looking around for us to wonder where was I? And the second thing is when I decided to look down, there was, some, there was this kid laying on the ground out. <laughs> and I didn't recognize, uh, at first I didn't recognize who it was until my brother came crying out of the car and he started crying and trying to wake me up. Then I realized that's me. <laughs> so I'm floating above uh, and looking down and I got scared because besides seeing my brother and my aunt and there was another car filled with people behind us that came up and uh, tried to help. Uh, there are these shadows kind of like gathering around and there's, I felt like being pulled somewhere and I panicked and I was, I got scared. And right when I got scared, I felt this hand kind of like reach over, <laughs> uh, reach over and pull me in. And I looked back and there was this huge, huge Hawaiian man. He grabbed me, held me close and didn't say anything and just took me zipping off in, in the air. And um, so he took me away from this scary situation that uh, he wanted to protect me from. After, um, after he took me away, I felt like we were moving really quick through, through space. And in fact, it felt like I was flying, you know, and moving really, really quick. And, um, and in fact, when I, when I first started, uh, when I first saw Star Wars and, you know, when they make the jump and the lights just go, in a way it reminded me of that, but the lights were flashing. I wasn't in these long streaks of light, but they were just like flashing by like um, little spots here and there and just passing by, but it felt like we were moving through space. And then eventually, um, after a while, I was just looking, you know, wondering who this man was. Uh, we came to a place where the first feature I noticed was it, it looked like a, a rocky cave. And uh, in the middle of this rocky place, there was a hole in the ground. And we entered the hole, and there was light coming out from the hole, light from the top above the hole, light through the hole. And we went down in a hole, and when we reached the bottom, we entered a small room. And this room was 
kind of like um, an octagon shape. Could be more size than eight, but um, it was geometric and stuff. It wasn't a circle, but there were edges to it. And on each of these um, walls, there were windows and doors. And I could easily go to any of the window and uh, doors and just open it and go on the outside. But when we got there, he held me in the room and told me not to go outside because uh, as my eyes started to adjust to the darkness on the outside, I could see people moving, uh, shadows of people moving. And uh, once they realized that I could see them, they started coming closer to the window and they started calling my name. And, uh, you know, the name that they called me was David, David, David. And my ancestors, when they visit me, my ancestors have been visiting me in my dreams from the time I was little, before this accident. And when my ancestors addressed me, they called me by my Hawaiian name, Imai Kalani, Imai Kalani. So when these people started calling me by my uh, given name, you know, David, 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 come David, you know. Um, I knew they weren't family members, but um, they looked like my family. And I was confused. And it was my ancestor who had taken me to the room that told me, uh, you think those are your ancestors? They're not. They're deceivers. They want you to get outside with them and join them. And so I said, well, what happened if I do? This is why you're going to join them in this dark place and you'd be roaming around like them lost from that point on. So that's why he kept me in the room for my safety. That's amazing. So this Hawaiian man slash angel is an ancestor. Do you know who? Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind telling us? Yeah, he's um, eventually... Um, Actually, it was the first time I really seen him um, in, in the way he was. Um, for me, he was huge. But in reality, he's a short man, um, you know, uh, not even six feet tall. But um, I was seeing his spirit, which was a giant. He was a giant, giant of a man. He was a kahuna nui uh, for Kamehameha the Great and Kamehameha II. And his name was Heva. So uh, Heva was that uh, man that came to help me. And uh, Akahuna Nui is a spiritual advisor. And he has many gifts. In fact, um, when I take a look at some of the gifts that uh, Heva was known to have, uh, we are very similar. <laughs> We're, we're so similar. All right. What happened next? So um, he helped me in a room. In fact, I was, um, I was hungry and I was thirsty and there wasn't anything to eat in there. And so the spirits out there knew and they were trying to give me plate lunch. <laughs> and they, <laughs> you know, they were trying to give me, entice me to go and join them. So when I stood up to try and go, um, my ancestors just grabbed me and put me down and help me. Uh, I'm hungry. They give me trying to feed me. No, they, I uh, you know you, Michael, and he's staying here. Don't go, don't go. You, you know, we're just keeping you here. Don't go out. And um, finally he got frustrated and grabbed me and he sat down on my chest <laughs> and, and pinned me to the ground. And I started crying and kicking, I was kicking and fighting at him. And finally, I just gave up. I said, well, whatever. And right when I gave up and started to cry myself to sleep, that's when I woke up in a hospital. Uh, my head was just throbbing and uh, people were all excited, uh, you know, because uh, I was unconscious up until that moment. And so when I opened my eyes and looked around, I said, oh, I'm no longer in this uh, small room anymore. I'm in a hospital. And I tried telling uh, my 
uh, my parents and our nurses um, and my doctor what was happening at that time. But they just say, ah, you fell down in your head. You scrambled your brains. That's all hallucination. Yeah. (laughs) That that was very typical years ago before people understood these NDEs and that these things are real. Yeah. But yours is is very unusual. I've never heard one quite like that before. That's really cool. And as a five-year-old, how do you process that, especially if you can't really talk to anybody about it? Well, (laughs) um. Before I even went, uh, before I even had this, uh, I, I was a weird child. <laughs> so so uh, my dreams used to be really, really strange and um, prophetic. So the things that I used to dream about used to come true. And I used to see them. And so, um, you know, as for me, it was just an extension of uh, what I was going through already. Um, I couldn't see spirits before this accident, but after this particular accident, something changed in my head. Um, Something changed in my perspective where now from that point on, I could see spirits and um, I learned how to communicate with them after that. And it, Took quite a while for me to learn that, but I figured it out. So um, it was more of like a continuation of uh, development. It's a new thing that uh, came. And when these things are happening, um, I, when I tell it to other people, people are surprised that I'm not freaking out. <laughs> and I remind them that um, the culture that I grew up in and the family, uh, the things that my family were able to do, what I saw and what I was able to do is minor, <laughs> you know? So it's normal. So these things were, weren't scary to me. Yeah, and it just wasn't that big a deal because it was fairly normal. Okay, that's enough for one show right there, but <laughs> but there's more. Hey, let's go to, to near-death experience number two. How old were you? What happened? Near-death experience uh, number two occurred in uh, right around 1979. Uh, in 1978, uh, I was a police officer, and uh, I was asked to go to uh, Illinois, Evanston, uh, Illinois, uh, for the Traffic Institute. Because uh, on the island of Molokai, where I was a policeman, um, they wanted me to be the administrator for uh, traffic, uh, not traffic, uh, licensing. So uh, the police chief sent me there and I went to school. If you read in your history books, 1978 in Chicago, was the worst snowstorm in history. <laughs> yeah, it was cold. You were out of your element big time. Oh, it was so funny because I uh, I went up with a thick um, sheepskin uh, coat and uh, it had plastic buttons. And I wore it out of, out of the terminal uh, to hail a cab. As soon as I stepped out of the terminal, I heard... <coughs> like popcorn popping. I don't know, what is that? And I look at my uh, my plastic buttons, they're gone. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just a cold from, uh, from the environment exploded my plastic buttons. So all <laughs> of my buttons were all gone. <laughs> and I'm over there exposed. And uh, I knew it was going to be uh, I knew it was going to be cold, but I wasn't prepared for that. So uh, I was up there for two weeks. And during that two weeks, I got uh, double pneumonia. And so when I returned to Hawaii, um, both of my lungs were just infested. I could hardly breathe. My temperature was going up. Um, I went to the doctors. Doctors gave me things. But I, I really thought that I was going to die. And so one night I took my temperature and it was uh, 103. And uh, 
I told my wife, you know, I'm going to sleep. And if I die, <laughs> if I die in the process, um, you know, just be, uh, just be reminded everything will be taken care of. And she looks at me, don't you talk about dying. <laughs> so I went in and slept. And um, about early in the morning, I would say between uh, two o'clock and three, I'm sleeping and I feel someone pull on my toe. <laughs> For Polynesians, if you pull a person's toe while they're sleeping, uh, there's a trick that you play and you're waking up their spirit to have the spirit talk to you. So I thought that's what somebody was doing to me, every pulling my toe. So I woke up. And when I woke up, I felt really, really good. I felt strong. I could breathe. There's no pain in my chest. I feel myself, oh, feel good. So I stood up from my bed and I looked and there was my friends standing at my foot of my bed, smiling at me, wearing his overalls. And I run up to him and I hug him and his name is Bruce. I said, Bruce, what you doing here? So I hug and I kiss him and stuff. Oh, Bruce, I miss you so much. Then I realize my friend Bruce is dead. <laughs> so And he's there in my room at my foot of my bed. And I look at him. I says, Bruce, you're dead, right? He goes, yeah, that didn't change. <laughs> and I so, oh, no. Am I dead too? And I turned towards my uh, the bed to look where I was sleeping. And he kind of slides over and says, David, don't look. You don't want to look at it. And so I I knew what he, I knew what he was doing. He was shielding me from looking at my body. So I sat down and I cried on the floor like a little baby. And he's there looking down, and he's more like a big brother figure to me. And he's teasing me, and he picks me up by the collar and says, stop being a sissy boy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and pulls me up and, get up here. Yeah? And, you know, there's nothing to worry about. I, I just came to show you something. And so I look at him and say, you came here to show me something? Not to take me away? And he goes, no. So he calmed me down. And so right next to our bed, there's a, um, there's a closet. And he reaches in, opens the closet, sticks his hands inside, uh, inside the closet and spread the clothes apart. And when he spread the clothes, in the back of the closet, there's a round hole. And I look at the hole. And the longer I stare at the hole, the hole gets bigger until it fills the whole closet. And he kind of looks at me and says, you ready? And he grabs my hand. And before I could answer, we start walking in the tunnel. <laughs> and so this tunnel, uh, as I started walking in the tunnel, the tunnel looked like, um, in fact, it looked like a blood vessel. It, it wasn't. It wasn't like um, walking in earth. It looked like we were walking through some kind of living organism, more like a blood vessel, and it was elastic. It kind of like breathed in and out and stuff. And so while we were walking in, started off really dark, but way at the end, there was a uh, light kind of like drying us, and so we started walking more towards the light. And halfway through the tunnel, um, our um, our dress changed. We started. Uh, we were dressed in something white, and looked like feathers, particles. In fact, as I touched the clothes, it gave off energy, and this energy kind of like was really felt really really good. So we walked, and we kept on uh, making turns, and. My friend, um, Bruce, had passed away about two months um, before this incident. And he left four children uh, and his wife. Uh, he died of a stroke while playing volleyball at one of our ward activities. So um, while we were walking through, he was asking about his wife and his kids, how they were. And so I says, wow. Well, 
you know, your your son, your oldest son, Bruce, uh, who's about 12 years old at the time when he died, uh, spoke very well at your funeral. Uh, he's the one that gave the eulogy. He did really well. He says, yeah, I know, I was there. So very proud of him. So finally, we reached the end of the tunnel. And at the end of the tunnel, there's a membrane. And uh, this membrane kind of like was breathing. And as I looked across uh, the membrane, there was a landscape. And there was a hill, there was grass, there's trees. And I looked at, on the other side, and uh, it was beautiful. And then... I heard people's voices coming from over a hill and um, I see people coming over the hill and coming towards the membrane as long line of people. And I looked at Bruce and says, who are these people? He says, well, take a look. And sure enough, when I started, you know, looking better, I saw my grandfather's. Uh, both grandfathers, my grandmothers, they who had passed away. I seen some uncles and aunties who had passed away. I said, "Hey, this is all Ohana." I said, "Yes, it's family," and they all came to greet me and uh, at the veil. Then I heard well, 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 barking, <laughs> barking, and things, and I was like, "Oh, what's that coming from?" And from the same direction came a bunch of dogs and different animals. And as they came close to the uh, this membrane, they started jumping up on the membrane. And I looked, these are my pets from the time I was little. And I knew their names, I knew who they were, and they're trying to jump on me, trying to get me. And I started crying. <laughs> I missed them, you know. And they remembered you, too, it sounds like. They remembered me. They knew who I was, and those were my pets. Uh, you know, my pigeon that I raised from uh, a squab, and uh, she was there. Uh, my favorite dogs were there. They're all excited to see me and my, uh, my family members. So I'm standing over there, and, uh, you know, my ancestors started to uh, call me by my Hawaiian name, say, my colony. Hey, my, hey, my, time to come. And so um, I looked at them and I took a step forward into the veil. And right when I stepped into the veil, I looked towards the back uh, of the group, uh, my ancestors, and there was my grandfather. And my grandfather was looking at me. He was frowning. He was frowning and shaking his head. No. So he's telling me, no, the time wasn't right. And so same time, same moment he did that, I heard a voice coming from the other end of the tunnel. And it was my daughter. She was a little girl at the time. And she called out. Daddy, Daddy, where are you, Daddy? And so I hesitated, and I felt my friend put his hand, reach out, and put his hand on my chest. And I backed out. He helped me back out of the veil where, uh, you know, and remain in this world. And so basically he drugged me out and pulled me out and saved me. And... Uh, I looked at my friend, I says, you know what, Bruce, I cannot do this. I cannot, my daughter, you know, there's there's people that love me. I need to go take care of them. And so I hugged him. And while I'm hugging him, he whispered in my ear and says, you know, Dave, I wish I made the same decision you're making right now. So he was given a choice of either going through and being with his ancestors or staying. And uh, that was a choice given him. He chose to move on. Yeah. And not everybody gets that choice. Yeah. Um, just like in your first experience, you didn't really have a choice but to come back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you ever thought about people like Bruce 
how many make the choice when they have it to stay versus how many choose to come back. Could you guess? Is it 50-50? Is it, I mean, who knows? But I don't know. I, that's something I think about. Yeah, but considering um, considering what had happened to Bruce, he had a massive stroke. And had he survived the stroke and returned to his body, uh, he would basically be bedridden for the rest of his life and his wife would have to take care of him. And he would be a burden not only to his wife, but also his children should he continue living you know, in that way. And Bruce wasn't like that. Um, he didn't want you know, people to be uh, you know, taking care f- for him. So I think he saw the long range uh, impact should he return. Yeah. And he made the decision that it would be better, um, you know, less uh, traumatic and stuff on the family uh, if he just went. Do you have any memories of what it was like going back in your body? Actually, it felt like I was falling <laughs> when when I I told Bruce I says you know I you know I, I I need to go back and it felt like I was in a vacuum and um, something pulled me and I felt like I was free falling like jumping out of the airplane and you know uh, before the chute the parachute opens and I'm free falling free falling and. Um, the next thing I know, I slammed into something and it jolted me up. It felt like I hit the deck somewhere and I woke up. And when I woke up, I was back in my body. My fever broke. <laughs> in fact, the bed was soaking wet. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, we've had a full show today hearing about these two near-death experiences, but... Say it with me, but there's more. Yes, there are. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's go on to number three. My near-death experience number three um, occurred when I was in my 40s. What, had, what happened is um, I was a teacher, yeah? And as a classroom teacher in a public school, um, we become very susceptible to uh, illnesses brought in to our classroom by these kids. I mean, every day I'm seeing about 180 students, <laughs> you know, coming in and different households and, you know, you never know where they are. So um, one day when we returned from, um, from October break, um, we returned and there's this group of uh, kids that went to the Philippines and they got sick. And instead of the parents keeping them home, they decided to send them to school. And as soon as I seen them, uh, you know, sniffling and things like that, I says, oh, man, I'm going to get sick. Sure enough, um, I caught avian flu from them. And um, not only did I get uh, avian flu, but I also had meningitis. And um, the combination of these two uh, made my blood septic. In fact, um, my blood sugars are so high for uh, for so long, it wasn't even registering on my blood glucose monitor. And I began to get really, really sick. And uh, I stayed home to try and take care of myself. And uh, it came a time where um, I was drinking water, but nothing was coming out. Nothing was coming out. I wasn't urinating. And this was going on for about two days. Finally, I, I decided that. Ah, I would drag myself to the hospital to check myself. So I, I was so weak. As I uh, got to the front of my apartment, I collapsed and fell through uh, the jealousies um, by my apartment. And um, luckily, the handyman uh, that was outside working came and rushed, called the ambulance, and the ambulance came and took me to the hospital. When I reached the hospital and um, the doctors uh, came in and there were a bunch of doctors checking on me, one of the doctors said, told me that my organs had shut down. My kidneys had shut down. And um, my blood was so septic and my condition was so bad. Had I reached the hospital 
I, you know, 20 minutes later, they couldn't guarantee my life. So they put me in an ICU and I was there for, uh, I was there for about five days. But during this time, so much medication coming into me. You ever seen a papaya tree? Yeah. <laughs> All the fruits hanging down. That was my IVs. <laughs> so all of the IV bags were all just lined up one after another. It looked like a fully laden <laughs> papaya tree from top to the bottom. And I had tubes running into me from every vein that they could find and just to keep me alive. Only someone in Hawaii would make that kind of analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those that don't know, papaya trees are tall, very skinny, and there's just leaves and fruit at the top. There's not anything going up the trunk, so it would be kind of like that metal IV pole, I guess. Yeah, well, some varieties, some varieties of the papaya, um, the fruit will continue all the way down on the uh, on the trunk down to the ground. Yeah, yeah. So that's that was my uh, IV. Anyway, the second night that I was there, um, I'm not sure if I had an NDE or this was a dream. So this one is kind of like iffy, but uh, if you go by the definition of NDE, the NDE is a, a psychological experience, yeah? something that happens in your mind. And so um, that's why I include it as a, my third NDE. In this dream, in this vision I had, I found myself in a grave. I found myself in a grave and uh, I was in a hole. And when I looked up into the hole, there was a, um, there was a headstone, my name and a date that I died <laughs> right written on there. And it scared me crap out of me so I clawed my way out and I started looking for a place to escape I'm running around the this uh, the cemetery and the cemetery is huge and I, uh, every time I come to a gate the gate is locked and the fence is too tall for me to get out so I'm running around running around and then I see a man a uh, very well-dressed man and he's dressed in black and he's wearing a top hat. And when I looked at him, he, he looked familiar to me, like I saw him before. And so I stopped and he, he kind of looked at me and says, uh, what are you doing? So I'm trying to get out of here. He says, uh, you're in the grave, you know, and who are, I asked him, who are you? And the man says, I'm death. And I says, what are you doing here? Death says, I came for you. And I looked at him and I said, I swore at him. <laughs> <laughs> and I started running away. And um, when I started running away from death, I looked behind and death sent four huge dogs to chase after me. They looked like Rottweilers and they started chasing me. And so I started running, running, running and running for my life. And um, I'm looking for a place where, I started looking for a place where I can defend myself should the dogs come and corner me. And so I saw this huge tree and I ran towards the tree. And just before I reached the tree, a dog trips me up and I fall flat on a uh, on the on the ground, and the dogs start biting at me, and so I get up against the tree, and they're chewing on me, and they're gnawing at me, and I'm trying to fight off, fight them off, and all of a sudden, I feel this rage, this tremendous rage and fury in me, to the point where I started to change, I started growing bigger. I started drawing, uh, growing claws. I look at my hand, they're getting long and hairy. And uh, as I started looking at myself, I realized 
I'm morphing into a wolf man, <laughs> a werewolf. And I turn into this huge, powerful werewolf. And the dogs that are trying to attack me, they look so teeny and puny. In fact, one of them jumped to try and get at me. I grab him and bite off its head. And I spit it out like a seed. And the head goes tumbling um, and come to rest right in front of death. And death kind of looks at him and looks at me. And it kind of like smiles. And I toss the dog away. The other dogs, one dog, I stomp on him. The other one, I just grab and rip. And then the, the final one, the final dog, sees what I do with his companions. And he looks at me and tucks his tail between his legs and run off yelping. And I'm over there just feel buffed, strong, powerful, and mad. And I looked at death and I says, now I want you. Come on, let's go. <laughs> I wanted to fight death. <laughs> and death stands over there and he's, he started laughing and he claps his hand. He says, congratulations. And I says, well, what for? He says, well, look like he got something to live for. He says, yeah, I did. And at that time, I had just met my wife. <laughs> I had just met her. And I realized that this woman would change my life. And up until that point, I was making a lot of bad decisions. And um, had I died in that moment, I was okay with it. But thinking about uh, the moment in time, this, this was a turning point for me where I had to make a choice. And the choice was, I choose my wife. And so um, because I made that choice, I found my life was worth preserving. And so death says, congratulations, you found a reason to live. Up until this time, you're ready to throw your life away. Congratulations. And so I says, well, you're not going to take me? He says, no, but I catch you later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you have that going for you. Yeah. And so, you know, um, actually, that was, that was a turning point. Uh, and all of these uh, NDEs were turning points in life where um, I had to make changes. And this was the biggest, biggest change that I had to make in my life. And uh, since making the decision to be with my wife, uh, the best decision in the world. <laughs> That's great. Let's talk about your final experience. Then we'll come back to some of those things you learned and changed. Sure. The last on. Uh, NDE occurred when I had my uh, open heart surgery. Uh, I had triple bypass and uh, they had to go in to repair uh, my mitral valve. Uh, my mitral valve uh, had not been working since, uh, working well since uh, I caught rheumatic fever in my senior year of high school back in 1971. So almost 20 years or so, 30 years. Uh, plus, um, I was, you know, not right. <laughs> so when they went in to um, repair that part, they stopped my heart. So uh, basically, I was dead. <laughs> uh, for a uh, surgery that's supposed to last uh, three and a half hours, Seven and a half hours later, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wake up in a room. But anyway, sometime during the surgery, um, I found myself uh, floating, floating in this dark room. And um, I didn't understand where I was. And I, um, I could see this light shining on something that was covered in blue and there were people around moving around really excitedly. You know, they were excited. There was um, panic in their voices and um, I didn't understand what was going on. So I decided to go closer to get a better look. 
And when I came closer and started looking down, I saw me <laughs> lying down on a table, my chest wide open, my heart is in there, and the tubes running in. And I go, oh no. <laughs> you know, they and and the doctors and nurses are going, you know, they're trying to shock me. And um I see my body jolting, jolting, jolting. And I got scared. And it's this scary feeling that triggered uh, the return of my ancestor, uh, who this time appeared again from behind, grabbed me and held me close to him. And when I looked back and recognized him, and uh, you know, I said, well, Kupuna, thank you. And so he took me out of the room and we went through the, uh, we went through the surgery, uh, the surgical uh, room through the building. And we uh, ended up above the hospital looking down and I could see all of downtown Honolulu where this uh, hospital was. I could see everything. I knew exactly where I was. And I turned to Kupuna and stuff and says, uh, where are we going? And he told me, well, we're going back to our safe room to keep you safe. And so we zipped right back to the same place I was when I was five years old, this small little room. But this time there were, uh, there was my, there was my ancestor and, uh, three other, uh, three other large body Hawaiians <laughs> uh, to try and keep me in the room. But uh, they took me back to the room and we waited out until finally the doctors figured out a way to revive me. And uh, while we were sitting there and talking story, um, my kupuna was interested and he wanted to um, he wanted me to understand uh, my name uh, better in my Kalani. And um, he, he says that uh, I'm at the point in my life where the name had changed, uh, the meaning of the name had changed, and uh, no longer it meant I come from heaven, but uh, rather it describes a person who can talk with the gods that is amazing. Yeah. Why would it why would your name change the meaning of it? Yeah, this is um this is part of the traditions of naming someone, yeah, in, in Polynesia. Um and names have multiple meanings. So it's not just one literal meaning, but uh, it has multiple meanings, what Hawaiians call kauna or hidden meanings inside of a name. And as a person matures and grows into the names and discovers uh, new applications of the name, the name, the chain, uh, the meaning of the name change to give you better direction on uh, where your life, uh, what you need to focus in life on. Yeah. So the name kind of like uh, defines who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. So what's your takeaway from all this? I mean, most people haven't had one amazing experience like you have. You've had multiples. Why? Why? First of all, why do you think you've had those kinds of experiences and what has it done for your life? Well, I think the reason why I had four near-death experiences is that I'm a hard head. <laughs> I'm stubborn. <laughs> and uh you know stubborn and a slow learner <laughs> but um yeah it seems that you know for I, I i think my life um i'm not consistent enough you know up until up until recently i'm not consistent enough and um it's easy for me to get distracted in in different things um, and um, there's many, there's been many times where I find my life has been off balance, where I'm emphasizing too much in one area and neglecting 
other areas. So, um, you know, I pigeonhole myself too much. <laughs> and so that's why I had these multiple, um, you know, near-death experiences because um, if I really take a look at um, what I was doing, the interesting thing about it, you know, that second NDE where I was working with the police force. Right. Less than, less than two years later, I left the force. <laughs> I, I knew I was in a, I was in an occupation. Uh, it didn't suit my personality. So I had to make a change. So what can other people learn from your experiences? Maybe one thing that you can leave everybody with today. The, the one thing that I learned from having all of these things is uh, never give up on yourself. You know, never give up on yourself, no matter how bad things are going and no matter how, um, you know, screwed up your life think, uh, thinks you are. Uh, life is very valuable. Uh, I was ready to surrender mine uh, during my, you know, uh, during my third near-death experience, I was ready to give up. Uh, but there's uh, there's more than me. Yeah, um, My uh, impacts more than me. I'm not in, an, in my life alone. There's other people. There's my wife. Um, had I given up um, at that time, several years ago, um, Imagine all the clients that I help that wouldn't be helped. So, uh, yeah, we're not in life alone. It's, uh, there's, we impact so many different people. And so if we give up too early and stuff, we lose uh, that opportunity to share and help other people. Well, Imaikalani, mahalo. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> If you have had a round-trip death experience, we would love to hear about it. Send an email to eric at roundtripdeath.com. And lastly, if you have found this program uplifting, if it's given you just a little more hope in the future, share it with a friend, hit that follow button, and take a few seconds to write us a review. Until next time, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Next.